Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, Blog Talk listeners. Chuck Morse, host of Chuck Morse Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m., right here at Blog Talk Radio, and our affiliate stations are joining us in the next hour, those being Cyber Station USA Radio Network, and of course, our rerun on WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. You're welcome to join the program, 347-327-9849. That number again is 347-327-9849. We will be joined momentarily, um, at least hopefully momentarily, uh, by Robert Franklin, who is uh, the author of a new documentary and reform effort, that gets to the issue of the erosion of due process in civil and criminal proceedings in this country. Uh, He says here, in many areas of American law, the presumption of innocence has been lost. A case in point is that of the Central Park Five, a group of black and Latino teenagers who were falsely convicted of raping and beating a 28-year-old white woman in 1989. Only in 2002... With these young men exonerated by DNA evidence pointing to a serial rapist. A new documentary by celebrated filmmaker Ken Burns tells the whole shocking story. By the way, he is an excellent documentarian, I must say. He certainly has a liberal bent, and that's fine, but, uh, and he's not, you know, he's somewhat of a conventional thinker when it comes to history, but yet he does a very good job. And um, he really is not overly political. Uh, I just uh, saw one of his documentaries on our PBS station, that being the um, the story of the, um, the the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, which was really quite sensational. Then there's the case of Nancy Black, a marine biologist charged with lying about whistling at a humpback whale, an environmental crime according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The case has crippled Black's scientific career, costing her more than $100,000 in legal fees, and might land her in prison for 20 years. Holy mackerel, whistling at a humpback whale? 20 years? 100,000 bucks? Abuses like these are rife within our legal and regulatory systems such that private citizens are losing their due process rights and their civil liberties every day. Robert Franklin of Stop Abuse and Violent Environmentalists, and Violent Environmentalists, thank you, uh, shows the way back to sanity. The mission of this much-needed organization is to promote public awareness about the loss of the presumption of innocence in the American legal system and to support citizen activism to restore it. Uh, so we uh, are waiting, awaiting the arrival of Mr. Franklin. I think that he'll probably be up with us after the uh, first break. And 
And um, a lot of things come to mind for me on this topic. Firstly, we have the phenomena in this country of so-called slap suits, S-L-A-P-P. Um, Senator Jim DeMint of South Carolina has written about this, that what the slap suit is, is it's not so much a lawsuit, but it's a threat. It's a threat to launch a lawsuit against people who may be expressing political opinions that are not popular with any particular group. For example, um, if you have a, um, not to get into an unpopular issue, but nevertheless it's unpopular in certain quarters, you may have a, a minister in a church read passages from the Old Testament that would indicate that homosexuality is a sin, you know, punishable by death. I think it's called in the English translation in the King James Version, it says it's an abomination. Now, this is not a politically correct position to take, but at the same time, it's, it's uh, what the Bible says, and that's what religion, Christian religion is based upon, the Bible. So it's his right to say it, except that this very self-same minister may be threatened with, and there are cases where the minister has been threatened with a lawsuit, a slap suit. Um, and it's not so much the minister himself that's threatened. It's organizations that may support him by publishing an article he's written or somehow promoting him, maybe a radio station carrying a sermon or whatnot. And the purpose of the slap suit is not so much to bring the lawsuit to fruition or even to bring it to court, because in such a format, the the the, the, um, the initiators of the suit know that they most likely will lose. What it does is it, it presents enough of an intimidating threat to the organizations that are supporting the minister that they agree to silence the minister by no longer carrying his radio broadcast or basically editing out his articles and you know removing him from any ability to communicate. And so it has an intimidating and actually quite a chilling effect on free speech in general, but also on political speech that may not be seen as politically correct. Uh, and thus you have this phenomena of the use of our court system or the threat to use our court system to silence people. And the fact of the matter is that the minister or the organizations, even if they know that they could win such a lawsuit, you know, to go through it with, with the expense and the time and the and the effort and the huge numbers of hours that would be required to appear in court over and over again, it, it could put a company out of business, not to mention the fact that it could seriously rip apart, if not destroy, the reputation of the company. So they what they do is that they bow to the intimidation and they will drop the speaker. You know, they just it's easier that way. It's the path of least resistance. So what we have then is an increased phenomena with these slap suits, and I hope that Robert Franklin is going to get into this uh, once he's on the air with us, of, um, of intimidating people, of using our court system, using our judicial system to intimidate people. And the fact is that our judicial system is not really, at least it was not created to be used in such a manner, and in fact, 
the judicial system could stop this by simply um, presenting enough of a case record, enough of a uh, case study record in which such cases are dismissed and thrown out as frivolous. And there are even cases, and in fact, there's, there's a relative number of these over the years in which people who would bring such suits would be penalized. They, they, they'd be fined. You know, they'd have to pay a price. <clears throat> that would include not just uh, covering the cost of those who they victimized, but just general punitive damages to the court itself. Because after all, they're using the time of our judiciary, which is a public institution and which is paid for by, by you and I, the taxpayer, and which is supposed to serve a particular purpose on their own political agenda by bringing lawsuits that have nothing to do with the law. It is not illegal for individuals to express unpopular political opinions. In fact, quite the opposite. We have a system that upholds their right to express their opinions. And if someone doesn't like their opinions, then rather than try to use the court system and use the state, in other words, because the courts are an extension of the government. I mean, that's public, you know, the public process, you know, which is intimidating and which is threatening free speech and all of that, and which is scary and which is basically saying we're going to come after you with guns because behind every government agent is a gun. Instead, if they were to do their due diligence in the context of a free system, they would go after the person that they oppose by basically boycotting their businesses or protesting outside their businesses and whatnot, which is perfectly acceptable, perfectly legal, and uh, would not be objected to. But, of course, ideally, it would be more preferable, in fact, most preferable, if they would go in and challenge the speaker and have a reasonable debate um, in, in a manner that we can all learn something. Anyway, we'll be back after a brief message. I'll introduce my guests at that time, that being Robert Franklin. Uh, please stay tuned. Robert Franklin briefly up on the board and then he disappeared 
it may have been my guest in hour number two, that being John West, who is a contributor to the book Magician's Twin. That's about C.S. Lewis and his uh, his attitudes on science and uh, its intersection with faith and his writing on a topic that I'm very interested in, which is Darwinism. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, there wasn't a confusion there because I'm expecting – um, John West in hour number two, and Robert Franklin in hour number one. That's what I have down here. So whoever was on with me, I hope that if that was Robert Franklin, he comes back uh, because this is his segment. Uh, Robert Franklin's documentary, again, deals with the issue of um, the erosion of due process rights, both in civil and criminal cases, um, by uh, mainly uh, – First of all, over-regulation of, um, of, by government of, of what should conventionally be viewed as normal activities to the point where people are finding themselves in big, big trouble uh, for doing things that are not criminal, or if they are, they might be uh, you know, worthy of a, a small fine. And also, um, you know, cases where people are being falsely convicted of crimes and being tried for crimes that they didn't commit because the um, the proceedings have become so flawed that um, that people it's becoming more and more difficult to defend yourself against accusations. Uh, this is a very serious matter. It is being covered by filmmaker Ken Burns, who is a very good documentarian. Um, as I mentioned, he just had a documentary on the Dust Bowl that ran on PBS. It was superb. I I haven't watched most of that. I found it to be very gripping. So I'm hoping that Robert Franklin is back soon. What about this business of succession from the union? This has been a reaction by conservatives, and it is conservatives, across 50 states. Apparently hundreds of thousands of people are filing petitions with the federal government asking for their – or for their state governments – asking for their states to secede from the union. Um, what is this about? Is this just sour grapes? Are people uh, who are asking for this just uh, they're angry that they lost the election, that Mitt Romney did not prevail, and that Barack Obama was reelected? Is that what this is about? And this is certainly what many liberal uh, commentators are saying it's about. And I would contend that that's really way off the mark. That's not at all what's going on here. Uh, generally speaking, and of course I'm speaking in generalities, conservatives don't view politics as some kind of a game. It's not a sport. You know, it's not a football game where our guys win and your guys lose. And certainly there's an element of that, I mean, as, as there is in anything in life. You know, there's a natural sense of competition and you know, there's disappointment when your side loses. But uh, to distill it down to that is not exactly accurate, and I think that that's much more of a projection by, by so-called progressives in terms of their own outlook on the world in which they do view such matters as a contest. You know, they view a power, the obtaining of power, as the, end, as the means and as the end, as the goal because they believe they've got some kind of an enlightened idea of what to do with power. So therefore, what, what happens is that eventually there's a corruption within that view, 
in that everything, the means justify the end. It goes back to the Machiavellian idea. Whatever it takes to gain power is okay. Whatever, you know, the the aspect of lying to obtain power, that's kind of a no-brainer because their entire philosophy is based upon lies. But more specifically, they feel righteous, they feel honorable, they even feel good about doing whatever they need to do to get into power because they believe they have a superior ability to exercise power for the good of others. And I don't in any way question their sincerity in that. I would simply point out that as sincere as they are and as sincere as they always have been, going back to the very beginning of time, they're wrong. They don't have an enlightened view of power. And in fact, the the existence of government itself and the existence of of legal responsibility, which is wielded by government, is not there for ideologies to exercise power. It's there to protect individuals and and groups, as it were, from conducting their own affairs and and, uh, believing in their own respective ideologies, you know, sort of to be more neutral in that way. So I don't think that this move towards secession has anything to do with, you know, sour grapes over the uh, over the upcoming election. Um, I really dislike intensely, you know, such comments and, or such uh, innuendo that it has something to do with the with um, conservatives not liking Barack Obama because they don't like African-American men and women, and therefore because Barack Obama is African-American, they therefore don't like Barack Obama. That's just a smear. It's a vicious lie. It's not to say there aren't racists out there, but racists are out there on both left and right. It's not, you know, the country has always had an element of racism. But, But to suggest that that's part of the dynamic is just a terrible... It's a lie that serves two purposes. It's a lie that avoids a discussion of what really is going on with those who are seeking succession. And it's also a lie in terms of an effective propaganda attack against conservatives by using stereotypes of conservatives as um, being involved in such matters. Okay, I believe that we have we now have... Um, uh, Mr. Robert Franklin on the line. Robert, is that you? Uh, yes, this is me. Thank you so much for joining uh, the program this afternoon. Um, you have um, authored a documentary about, um, and you also are spearheading a reform effort, I should point out, that point, points to the erosion of due process in the American civil and criminal system. Could you give yeah. us a thumbnail sketch? Yes. Um, uh, basically, uh, for uh, some 30 years, uh, the, the United States government and state governments have been over-criminalizing innocent behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been doing that in several different ways. Um, one way is through the removal of the requirement of intent as a part of criminal law. Traditionally, mm-hmm. uh, for hundreds of years, Um, In order to be convicted of a crime, the state had to prove that you had done a bad act and that you had intended to do that bad act. Well, that that intent requirement is now 
uh, not a part of a vast sea of criminal law. Uh, well, let me just are... let's just talk about that a little bit because um, okay. what you're talking about then is that in criminal proceedings, the traditional um, aspect of the prosecution would be to show that the intent of the of the of the accused. Yeah. With regard to uh, the crime, I mean, and, and what they would do is they bring up witnesses saying, "Did this person feel this way? Is there any evidence that they felt that way about the person that was, uh, 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 you know, upon which let's, let's theoretically say somebody might have been murdered?" Um, yeah. And that and that all of these things were introduced as evidence. Now, right. what occurs to me when you say this, Robert, is that perhaps the issue of intent has been replaced by such laws as, for example, hate crimes legislation. And that is to say that um, instead of um, using the idea that somebody might not like somebody because they're racist and that could have contributed to the crime, instead they're trying people for that in and of itself as a crime. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. what, uh, hate, hate crimes are, in fact, a very small part of what I'm talking about, although they are a part. Um, what I'm talking about are, uh, are are instances in which the actual behavior is entirely innocent. The person right. thinks that they are within the bounds of uh, of the law and and wouldn't dream of doing otherwise. But uh, gotcha! Uh, it turns out they've committed a crime, and mm -hmm. the and and uh, the instances of that are are so many. I can't begin to tell you. Well, I, and I think that the number is rising every day as we have reams and reams of new regulations put in place. Many of these laws created not necessarily by legitimate constitutional lawmakers like the Congress right. or like uh, state legislatures or even city councils, but they're being kind of put in place. Yeah, by these various appointed agencies that are given free hand to actually make law, which is yeah. unconstitutional. And uh, you give an example, for example, and I think this is in your documentary, of um, of Nancy Black, who is a marine biologist charged with lying about whistling at a humpback whale, which apparently is a, quote, environmental crime, according to the uh, National Oceanic and Administ Atmospheric Administration. You say here the case has crippled Black's scientific career, cost her more than $100,000 in legal fees, and might land her in prison for 20 years. That's correct. Nancy Black is a, a highly respected scientist uh, with a particular, she's a marine biologist, with a mm -hmm. particular interest in whales. One of the things that she does, uh, sort of as an avocation, uh, is that she conducts uh, public tours. She takes people out on boats, uh, where they can view whales uh, in the ocean, um, right. and, and people love to do this. Well, she was doing that one day when a humpback whale came up alongside the boat, that, which was a wonderful thing for all involved. Sure. Um, but, but she allegedly whistled while the humpback whale was alongside the boat. Uh, huh. This turns out to violate a federal regulation, um, and then she, uh, when the uh, NOAA asked her about this, they asked her for the video that had been made of the incident, which she turned over along with an affidavit saying that 
the, the video had not been altered or edited in any way. That turned out to not be the case. She did not know it was the case, but she uh, and, and the material that had been edited out had nothing to do with the, 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 the alleged violation of the regulation. But mm-hmm. she is now facing up to 20 years in prison. She has spent a, over $100,000 in legal fees and faces the, the demise of her career for this. Well, you know, the bizarre thing is, first of all, I know nothing about what's wrong with whistling at a whale. <laughs> but, um, you know, putting that aside, even if that were something that was not a good idea, since when do such things become like laws? I mean, I could I could right. see this being maybe a uh, a rule within the um, National Oceanic and Administra- Atmospheric Administration for their employees. You know, this right. is like your guidebook. Don't whistle at whales. Just like um, right. when I worked for a radio station, I had certain guidebooks saying, you know, you know, for certain behaviors, you don't reveal, you know, information to the competitor or whatnot. But but these weren't laws. You know, you, you, right. the worst thing that could happen to you if you violated one of these things is that you could be fired. But uh, even then, it's it, you know, it was just something that um, you know, you'd be called into the manager's office and they'd say, don't do this again, and you know, you might get a slap on the wrist. But exactly. but to have this become a criminal matter, right. um, that that in and of itself seems like part of what what you're talking about here, Robert. Exactly, and the the whole point is. That what Nancy Black did. You know, Nancy Black is a respected scientist. She has no criminal record. She has no interest in in in, in behaving in a criminal manner. What right. she did was entirely innocent. And all I'm saying is that she should get the right to go before a jury and say, "Listen, this was an innocent mistake," but she can't do that. Why not? That is not part of the crime anymore. Therefore, that is irrelevant. The judge does so, not oh, because care. of the business the of planning the, about it. So they're charging. They're not even charging her with the crime of whistling at a whale. They're charging her with somehow with editing the, um, with the, the the video, which they say was illegal. Correct. And, and even she, that, she did I, not know. Since when is that illegal? Even if she did know it. Well, I mean, is that is that a crime that someone goes twenty years in prison for? What is that about? Apparently. Apparently so. Let me tell you another story. I'm yeah. going to do, I'm going to do, uh, describe a crime. A man uh, had a business. Uh, he uh, uh, was harvesting lobsters off the coast of Honduras. He took these spiny lobsters um, and uh, uh, cleaned them. Took them on shore, cleaned them, packaged them in plastic bags, placed them on a ship, a refrigerated ship and sent them to the United States for sale. They were, uh, he had a distributor to wh- whom he would sell these lobsters, and that distributor would uh, uh, sell them to uh, chain restaurants like Red Lobster. Right. Well, you so heard, what's wrong with that? Heard, you heard the crime, didn't you? I, I think I might uh, have missed no, it. Neither, no, neither did I. Yeah. The crime is that he packaged the um, lobsters in plastic bags. Honduras, Honduran regulations says that, say that uh, they should be pla- uh, packaged in cardboard boxes. I now, see. in Honduras, this is not a crime. Indeed, it's a regulation that is taken so unseriously that they do not enforce it in Honduras, as, right. 
evidenced by the fact that he was allowed to do what he did. But once the ship, once the lobsters landed on shore in the United States, he was charged with not one, but three felonies. Uh, he was paid for what he did uh, for the lobsters, and when he deposited the money in the bank, it became um, uh, money laundering. And oh, had, since he had three business partners, they were all charged with conspiracy. And they and did eight did years he, in prison. Oh, my God. Who did the char- Who lodged these charges? The United States uh, uh, attorney for um, the District of Alabama. And, you know, I, mean, I just got a note here. Just as a little sidebar, I have a note here that says that politicians alter videos all the time, which is true. I mean, we know, like, for example, during this last election that that video showing Mitt Romney at a uh, fundraiser was altered. I mean, there was the cutout. they cut out two minutes of it, uh, you know, so we didn't hear the whole story. And I, I don't recall any criminal uh, charges being brought there. And, in fact, it was a criminal a matter to even film something on, w- without someone knowing it on private property. But... There were no criminal charges brought. So I suppose that when you have these kinds of laws, they're very selectively and arbitrarily enforced, very, which is the other very, problem. Right. Very discretionary. And, and of course, um, uh, the wealthy and powerful tend to uh, slide by, and right. the less wealthy and less powerful um, get, end up holding the bag, uh, Nancy Black being a good example. Okay, my guest is Robert Franklin. He is with Stop Abusive and Violent Environmentalists. Um, he is talking about a documentary that gets into the erosion of, uh, of due process in this country, civil in civil and criminal matters. Um, Robert, the uh, the other thing that I've read a little bit about in in this area, which is concomitant to the rise in huge quantities of of regulations and laws, much of which are not being uh, done by the government, but being done by these these um, independent agencies, um, is this phenomena of what's called slap suits. Now, I understand that slap suits, and um, Senator Jim DeMint wrote about this in a book that he published about a couple of years ago, and I interviewed him on it. Um, they're being used against people who might engage in what's viewed as politically incorrect speech or activities. Right. And sure. he points to, for example, a minister at a church who had a column published who criticized homosexuality by simply pointing out the Bible says it's an abomination. And the the, the newspaper was threatened with a slap suit for that. Now, the people that were bringing the slap suit, and I even think it was the ACLU was behind it. It was not just uh, you know a, a minor incident. They understood that they had no legal case. You know, this right. is free speech. He's quoting from the Bible. There's nothing. Right. He didn't do anything illegal. But the threat of the lawsuit and yep. the threat to the company that was carrying his column and their exposure and the, 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 you know, the reputation and the cost and the time that they would have to put in defending this frivolous suit made, made them back away and drop his column. In a, yeah. Rather than have to face the music with regard to the slap suit, so what right. the slap suit is is it's not actually a lawsuit; it's a threat of a lawsuit. And in, and in probably most, if not all, cases, these never become lawsuits because people are intimidated and they, they back down. 
A- absolutely. Uh, you know the the old phrase, uh, the old saying: "You can beat the rap, but you can't beat the ride." The, yeah. the the police can arrest you for for absolutely nothing, and the process of arrest and and being charged and going to going to court and hiring a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that is punishment enough. They don't. You, you can get off of the case. You can you can get your case dismissed. You can be found to be not guilty. You have still been punished. The same the same principle applies to to the slap suit. Uh, that that uh, it, you know it, it's not meritorious, but right. by the time you're done, uh, you'll, you'll think it was. Now, Robert, I think that there is a legal solution to the issue of slap suits. I'm not sure that this could be brought as far as it should be, but the fact of the matter is that our judicial system is not supposed to be used in that way. We're not right. supposed to – it's not legal, actually, to have people bring frivolous – what's called frivolous lawsuits um, in, in manners of uh, speech and whatnot. If they don't like the way this minister is preaching, they can deal with it in the private sector. They can protest they can write letters to the editor. You know, you can do things that's perfectly legal. But to bring this into our legal system and to use our our resources, state and federal, taxpayer-paid resources, our government resources, which are supposed to deal with criminal and civil matters, that's not legal. And, and a judge and, or a, even a jury, if it got that far, could actually slap the people who are bringing the slap by giving them fines and by by possibly uh, having them be called in a, 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 for a, a crime, has that Absolutely. happened? I mean, that seems to me to be the solution to it. Well, it's it's a solution, and judges should certainly uh, employ it more than they do. Uh, here's another suggestion: lawyers mm-hmm. are officers of the court. What that means is that they are not out there; uh, they, they are not empowered to do anything they uh, very well please. Um, right. They are uh, tasked with um, uh, looking at a case, evaluating a case, and and figuring out whether it is meritorious or not. Um, and and there is a gray area there, but. Some of these uh, slap suits that you're talking about, there's no gray area. They're very clearly not meritorious, and right. uh, lawyers should be disciplined uh, for bringing them, and, and that too would put a stop to it. That's right. I mean, a lawyer could be could get a mark on their uh, on in their ethical report at the bar association. They could even yeah, be, they, uh, you know, and if, if they, they repeat one or two sorry. or three, maybe they can get disbarred. Exactly. They could be disbarred, and also the people bringing the suit could be penalized as well. But the problem right. is that with the slap suit, it usually doesn't get that far. Uh, you know, the people that are being threatened with the slap suit back down before it reaches the point where it's in the legal system. So right. there's no remedy to it, The damage, but the damage has been done. What you have is a, is a contraction in the ability of people to be able to speak their minds. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a use of our system in an intimidating way that ends up restricting free speech. Absolutely. That that that's correct and and that's a built-in problem uh and people know it. Uh those who bring the slap suits know it and if they are withdrawn or the people settle or uh do what's what what's asked, for example, drop the column from the paper. 
then mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult to to police that. That's right. And uh, you know, and my guest, by the way, is Robert Franklin. Stop abusive and violent environmentalists. Uh, and Robert, it's also quite quite obvious that it's very frightening for people, whether you're an individual or a business, to be told that you're going to be brought to court for something, and you know you're going to have to pay. You know, it's not just a matter of the cost of it, but you know you're looking at the heavy weight of the of the government going out against you. Nobody wants to go through that. I mean, it's ugly. So Absolutely. people. Uh, you know, every you know, it's the easiest thing to do to just simply say, okay, throw your hands in the air and, and give up because you know you could it could ruin your life. You could right. end up being in big trouble. I mean, so so nobody wants that. It's a very it's it's a very troubling phenomena. And what I'm going to suggest now also is extremely controversial, but yet it is technically true as a remedy to dealing with these this sort of problem. If something actually does reach the court system with a jury and uh, and we're looking at someone being charged with violating some technical regulation that was put out by an agency, you know, like, for example, the case of Nancy Black, you know, where she's uh, spent all this money in legal fees, and that is a little thing called jury nullification. Right. Now, jury nullification is actually something that is legal it's part of our system, even though our court system doesn't want you to know about it. And that is that when you have an impaneled jury that has been you know, approved, in other words, a council of, of, of citizens that are impaneled to, to basically render a judgment in a case, that's almost like having a constitutional convention. They can take a look at the law that they're being asked to look at, and they can say, we're not going to abide by this law because we think it's unconstitutional or we don't like it for any reason, and they can literally throw it out. And, uh, you know, the uh, today's judicial system, they don't want you to know this. They want you to think that the judge is the final decider. But, in fact, the judge is only there to preside. The judge is like a conductor in an orchestra. He's there to make sure that everyone's playing their part, but it's the instruments, it's the musicians that actually do the music. And uh, yeah, he's he's a, he's a referee in a in a basketball game. That's all he is. That's right. So so in other words, it's the players, and in this case, the players, are the jury, they can do this, and they have done it in history. And I can give you a very famous example, and that was in 1850. There was a jury that threw out the um, the the um, I, I think it was called the Slavery Act, which basically was passed by Congress that that allowed. Um, southern sheriffs to go into the northern states and apprehend an escaped slave. Um, that this uh, this passed to Congress in 1850. There was a slave that was apprehended in Boston, and there was a riot. People came out and they tried, and there was fights to try to stop it. But they ended up he ended up it ended up going to court, and a jury in Boston threw the law out. They just right. said this is we're not going to abide by this because. We don't see anything in the Constitution that, that says that this is appropriate. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that someone has a right to own another person. So, you know, in a sense, I think that when our founding fathers set up our system, they deliberately understood that not only was our judiciary to be independent, but also that the jury was to be a check and a balance against government abuse. I've been an attorney for over 30 years, and uh, I want to make this very clear to your listeners. The jury system is perhaps the only 
exercise of direct democracy in our country. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what it is. Uh, we the people, in, in, in that situation, we the people decide matters of who uh, loses liberty and who doesn't, who loses, uh, who, who transfers money to whom and who doesn't, mm-hmm. things like that. In, as far as I know, in no other situation is that true. And juries take this, uh, this requirement very, very, very seriously. Uh, yes, I, they do, uh, but yet most jurors don't know that they have they, this power. Cor- correct, and, and I would encourage them to uh, understand the position that they are in and understand the abil- their ability to look at the law and say, this law does not need to be enforced. So, Robert Franklin, we're talking about methodologies to reduce this this absolutely wild, out-of-control train of regulations that are coming down the pike that are criminalizing what should otherwise be normal behavior for people or should be private matters. I mean, it's even reached into the schoolyard where you have a seven-year-old boy being charged with a crime because he insulted another kid in the in, in you know by by taking the ball. I mean, we're yeah. talking about um, the reach of the law into almost every aspect of our lives now. And uh, we've talked right. about two solutions to this problem. The first one is to uh, to confront the slap suits by having um, judges or by expecting our judges to uh, in, to uh, enact fines and penalties on lawyers who bring those suits and organizations maybe who are hiring these lawyers. And the second is jury nullification, which is if the uh, case does end up in a court, whether it be state, federal, or, or federal, the uh, the jury has the right to take a look at the laws and the charges and say, we're not going to abide by this because we think it's unconstitutional and we're going to throw this case out. That's one way to change these laws. What are some others? The, the main one is to lobby Congress. Uh, con- congressional representatives at the state and, and federal level are not at all immune to the concept that we are over-criminalizing American life, and, and we have. And if they hear enough of that, they will see the light and start to do the right thing. This is something that is not a matter of left and right. Both yeah. liberals and conservatives uh, have the not, not the exact same opinion, but they have the same response to the overcriminalization of American life, and and that that is the best thing that anyone can do. And let me tell you uh, about a particular example that is going to be in uh, before state legislatures in the very near future, probably next year, and mm-hmm. that is the redefinition of the term rape. The term rape. Uh, it will be defined uh, – let me see if I can get my notes here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it will be defined as sim- simply non-consensual, non-consensual sexual intercourse, including uh, the concept of, of um, impairment by alcohol. Okay? So, right. uh, example, the man and woman get married. Uh, they have a wonderful <clears throat> At their wedding, uh, at the reception, they imbibe champagne with their friends. Everything is joyful. Uh, They run off to the hotel and make love. Twenty years later, the woman 
uh, and the man are getting divorced, and the woman remembers, oh, I had alcohol to drink that night. I was tipsy. You raped me. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Under the new term, uh, uh, under under the new um, definition of rape that is being pushed before state legislature, she's right. He goes to prison. Um, and uh, the, the fact is that uh, this is coming down the pipe, and, and yeah. uh, we, we need, it's one of those things that needs to be stopped. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first of all, you're criminalizing sex. But right. secondly, I mean, it's, uh, it gets into an issue of um, <clears throat> that um, actually this does tend to be somewhat of an ideological issue, only in that the left likes to say that um, those who oppose these sorts of things are, are supporting rape, which, of course, is right. absurd because it's actually liberal judges who have, who have let rape, real rapists go, you know, and let, given them lenient sentences. The fact is that this is a very complex issue. You know, you can it, have it, a situation where two college kids get drunk and then they, they have sex, and then the next day the woman has regrets and she files a rape charge. You know, it, it doesn't get into the, the culpability of both of them or, or whether or not it was consensual. And such a charge can ruin a man's life, you know. And I mean, really, you go to jail, you could end up being kicked. You know, there's terrible, terrible consequences. Kicked out of school, et cetera. Sure. And and the uh, and and uh, more more to the point, the man has no knowledge of how he is to comport his behavior with the law. That's right. He, he, you know, that's one of the main aspects of the law is that we're giving people notice of what type of behavior we want. And short of total sexual abstinence, he has no way of knowing. So, so he, neither he nor any other man can know how to you behave know, in the future. It's certainly ironic because what it's doing is it's putting the law and it's putting the government in everyone's bedroom. And uh, you know the left likes to complain about that, saying, "Isn't it ironic?" Yeah, I mean, conservatives want to get in the bedroom of homosexuals or whatnot, which is, by the way, untrue. Um, you know, it has more to do with consensual activity. You know, it's not that they approve of it, but no, nobody's trying to criminalize that. I mean, if it's consensual, right. and right. Uh, and yet this is exactly what our, I would argue, our somewhat liberalish uh, legal system is moving toward, which is control over behavior in the guise of protecting women from rape. And by the way, that doesn't mean that if there is a rape, that the person shouldn't be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I actually think that uh, that rape laws have been watered down in the sense of um, dealing with rape, which is a violent crime. It's actually more violent than it is rape. But But in situations that we're talking about here, it's a very complicated question in terms of whether there was a rape, and we should not in any way flinch in terms of um, discussing that because we're protecting the civil liberties of everyone when we do. Right, and we should we should in no way trivialize the actual crime of rape. The idea that that um, uh, when a man and woman uh, get married and, and uh, you know on their wedding night have sex that 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 is rape is absurd. Of course. Uh, there are real rapes uh, that, that happen every day, and our resources should be devoted to those. And we shouldn't develop in the minds of the public a skepticism about, uh, about rape 
so that real rape victims don't get the attention they need. That's right. And, and again, this is a very, very serious crime. And when you have an expansion in the definition to include, uh, you know, what euphemistically in, in a catchphrase is called date rape, uh, right. which can be rape or it cannot be rape, you know, but, but you kind of lump it all in, then what you're doing is you're criminalizing behavior and you're getting the government involved in, uh, in private matters. Um, right. You know, I mean, if, if, if a woman, for example, thinks that a man might have um, misbehaved, you know, in the old, I suppose, in the in the more conventional sense and in the classic sense, she doesn't have to bring the bring the law into it and have the man charged with rape. She can simply go if it's on a college campus to the um, to the administration if she wants and say right. this man is misbehaving and he's being abusive, and that it can be handled on a private level inside the school. I mean, this is right. ridiculous. We were talking about seven year old boy getting charged. These are disciplinary problems that used to be handled privately inside the school. You know, there was a thing called chivalry and a thing called, you know, moral codes that were adhered to and that were not criminal matters. They were matters of discipline. And and, and to my way of thinking, it only should become a criminal matter if it's absolutely, um, you know, what it is. I mean, if it goes well beyond uh, something that can be handled uh, internally. And and, and something that that the people involved know is wrong. Right. Uh, again, you have you have the issue of intent. Did he know what he was doing was wrong? If he did, then he needs to pay the price. But if he did not and cannot know that what he was doing would someday be called wrong, uh, then you you cannot punish that. Uh, that that trivializes the uh, the offense and puts us all. Uh, in the position of being potential criminals. You now, speaking of this issue, you get into in this new documentary, um, which gets into the presumption of innocence having been lost, a case in point being that uh, the so-called Central Park Five, which has been in right. the news lately, a group of black and Latino teenagers who were falsely convicted of raping and beating a 28-year-old white woman in 1989 only in 2002, in other words, they spent 14 years in prison, um, with these young men exonerated by DNA evidence pointing to a serial rapist. And this is the topic of a new documentary by filmmaker Ken Burns. Now, uh, how did that happen? I mean, that these innocent men were, were you know, sent down the railroad, you know, sent up the rail. It like was a, a classic example uh, of a rushed judgment uh, in the press uh, and by everyone else uh, the day af- the day after these young men and we're talking young men we're talking boys we're talking right. 14 and 15 year olds mm. were arrested mayor ed Koch went on television television and said we got them the yeah. new york post referred to them as a wolf pack um the 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 media outcry against these boys was so overwhelming that I suspect the prosecutor couldn't have backed off of that case if he'd wanted to. Right. Facts were always, at least in question, there was no, none of the boys' DNA was at the scene. The woman had been uh, brutally raped and beaten 
into unconsciousness, so she could not remember what happened. She, to this day, as far as I know, has no memory of what happened, so she could not say. The right. police arrested these boys, held them without access to an attorney, held them without access to their parents for over 24 hours, threatened them, and coerced them into making confessions. And that's how they got got convicted. So you had basically a bad action from a lot of parties. I mean, you had a DA yes. and a police department that just wanted a conviction. You and had a mayor, a sitting mayor, elected official, publicly commenting on a law case, which they should never do. For you know, that that it's completely it, – first of all, it corrupts the case. It makes it difficult to have an objective jury and an objective uh, due process if you have – you know, someone commenting. It's, it's just a no-no. It's sort of like uh, you're not so, they're not supposed to do that in our system. I mean, this is also like the Duke lacrosse case, too. You know, you right. had all this publicity and the DA, the, 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 uh, DA who was eventually disciplined. I think I actually went to jail, that being Nifong, you know, becoming like a media star and, and, and parading these, these uh, Duke right. lacrosse students who were innocent. Right. And, and uh, the, you know, they were the, tried the in the press. The media, exactly, the media, which, uh, you know, is uh, jumps into a, a titillating and sensational case, you know, to fill up their, their time. And uh, and they, they put up, you know, lurid pictures of people and they, they destroy uh, people's reputation, which, which interferes. I mean, look, they have to report, but there used to be a certain level of ethics in journalism where, where you would not, you know, convict someone in the press. You know, you would have some uh, level. I, I, you know, this I recall an incident. I think it was when Nixon was president, when uh, Charles Manson, the uh, the yeah. mastermind behind the murders, uh, you know, the Lobianco murder and all these other terrible murders, and he had a cult following in Los Angeles. He was on trial, and Nixon made a comment about right. this being. He referred to him as a scumbag or something like that. And uh, and he was excoriated for that and should have been because they said, by commenting on this, you might be prejudicing the jury and you could end up helping this man get off. I mean, you can't, you know, in the middle of a trial like that, even though we may all feel that way, I mean, he was expressing certainly a popular opinion, when you have an elected official, someone in a position of, of legal authority, commenting on, on, on the progress of a trial – that's something that is not supposed to happen, and there are ethics rules about that. And one of the main re one of the main ways that uh, this happens is the press refers to the accuser as the victim. Well, mm -hmm. you can't have a victim if there's not a crime, uh, and that's one of the ways that the presumption of innocence is lost. And uh, I'll tell you another story. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a young man uh, named Jonathan Montgomery who has just been released from prison after serving four and a half years for uh, sexual assault. There was never a crime. He didn't do it. No one else did. The, the young woman lied to the police, and she has now admitted to lying to the police and on the stand in court, and she has been arrested for perjury. Right. Uh, the governor of the state of Virginia has issued a pardon to Jonathan Montgomery, saying... We're, we're letting you go. We understand that this didn't happen. In his pardon, he refers to the woman as a victim. Hmm. When, when the entire point <laughs> is that she wasn't, and that's right. that, that's the type of thing that I'm talking about. Right. That 
He's he's not a perpetrator, and she's not a victim until it's proven in court. Exactly. These are misappropriations. And, in fact, there's been a spate of those sorts of cases. There's one in Massachusetts where I am that um, where a man was convicted of rape, and 13 years later the woman, you know, racked with guilt for having made this accusation because she was trying to hide something from her father at the time. You know, she stepped forward and admitted it, and he was let out, and I think she was charged with a crime. So, you know, these are very, you know, these are not cut and dry cases. They have to be handled in a way that, um, you know, due process has to occur in such in a relatively objective atmosphere. You cannot be, you know, we're supposed. In fact, the whole one of the basic reasons why we have an independent judiciary is to avoid sort of the mob mentality. You know, to avoid. Right. You know the the old images that we get out of the Middle Ages, where you have people running around with uh, you know with with sticks, you know, you know, chasing right. Frankenstein. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. that's why we have you know the whole purpose of having you know a, a, a an object a system of government really, but in the broad sense, a a republican system is right. to avoid Gov- that sort of thing. Government always, and our founding fathers knew this very well. Government always tend to increase their power. And right. what that means is that they always tend to dis- decrease the, the, the rights and liberties and privacy of individuals, you and me. And mm. we can see that in spades. Uh, there are some, there are between 4,500 and 5,000 separate criminal offenses at the federal level alone. And that, Robert, that what you're trying to do of people have no idea of. Exactly. And what you're trying to do with your organization and with this documentary <laughs> is to counter that inexorable increase in government which is exactly. encroaching on all aspects of our life by right. uh, exposing it and by saying right. this is an erosion of liberty, it's an erosion of individual freedom and this is how we can challenge it. So Robert, we've reached toward the end of the uh, the hour, so I'd like you to give out information with regard to how people can reach you and how they can get information about this. Yes. Uh, The best thing they can do is go to our website, uh, which is uh, Stop Abusive and Violent Environments, Mm -hmm. otherwise known as SAVE, S-A-V-E, or you can go to saveservices.org, and you will find a wealth of information there, you will find out how you can get involved in our many uh, programs to combat this, uh, the ongoing intrusion of government into our private lives. Well, Robert Franklin, I congratulate you for what you're doing, and I want to thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay, okay. we're going to take a break. We'll be back in hour number two with John West. Clint.
two of Chuck Morse Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse. Welcome to the program. You're welcome to join the program. If you'd like to join the conversation, please call in at 347-327-9849. 347-327-9849. Or you can email the program at chuckmorse, number four, at gmail.com. This hour, we'll be joined by John G. West. He is editor of this compilation of essays, a new book called The Magician's Twin, C.S. Lewis on Science, Scientism, and Society. C.S. Lewis, of course, was the the novelist who wrote the Narnia trilogy, a very popular novelist. In fact, I think that um, he actually has a – there's a play right now in Boston, the Screwtape Tape. play that uh, uh, deals with a C.S. Lewis uh, topic. So when we come back, we'll introduce our guest, uh, please, and we'll introduce our affiliate stations. Please stay tuned. is the number Chuck Morse hosting Chuck Morse Speaks Monday through Friday noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and uh, let's see my guest this segment is John G. West he is the editor and a contributor to a new book The Magician's Twin C.S. Lewis on Science Scientism and Society he asked the question was C.S. Lewis a Darwinist C.S. Lewis is best known for his Narnian tales for children and his books on Christian apologetics for adults. But what did Lewis think about one of today's hottest controversies, the battle between Darwinian evolution and intelligent design? John, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Chuck, thanks for having me. Um, I'm enjoying the book. It's a very solid um, group of essays dealing with the uh, thinking and the um, of C.S. Lewis and how he looked at uh, religion and its intersection with politics, really. Um, he talks about scientism as opposed to science, which is uh, the main theme of your first part of your book. Could you make the distinction in terms of the difference between science and scientism? Sure, and I, thank you for raising that, because Lewis, I want to say, was actually pro-science. He wasn't anti-science, but he thought, just like any human endeavor, it could be abused. And so scientism really is the idea that the only way we know anything about the world, about morality, about uh, faith, is through science, and therefore, that since that's the only way we can have real knowledge about anything, uh, people who have scientific expertise are the ones who should basically rule. Uh, and so it's really an abuse of science, taking it outside its proper bounds, and uh, in, in many cases even making bad scientific claims uh, right. in favor of an ideology. And so Lewis was very concerned in his own lifetime about the abuses he was seeing in places like Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, uh, and actually even in his own England where there was a vibrant eugenics movement and uh, people trying to breed a master race, and he thought this was bad news and really the twisting of science, but saw where that was heading and was warning really prophetically about that. And I actually think you know, we deal with issues like Darwin in the book, but even the more broader issue is this abuse of science 
to try to uh, really infringe on people's liberties, infringe on right. uh, faith, infringe on one's moral beliefs. I think that is the larger issue that Lewis really warned about. Well, on the surface, it looks like the difference between science or pure science and ethics with government being involved not with science per se, but with the reflection of the ethics and the morals of a given society and of, of the attainment of justice. And Will, uh, Lewis has a fantastic quote on that. But more profoundly, it seems to me that um, the, ver the so-called sciences that you just mentioned, eugenics, uh, political science that is uh, we, know, we know as communism, you know, which calls itself a science, scientific socialism, and, and Nazism as well, that these movements wrapped themselves in science and they were accepted by large populations in their day as being absolute science. Now, once something calls itself a science, quote-unquote, it, it raises it to a certain level of, um, you know, of omniscience, if you will, which, which means that you cannot question those things because if you do, then you're going to be accused of being anti-science, of anti-reality, really. No, that's exactly right. And Lewis, uh, near the end of his life, um, last few years, actually coined a term, or, or it may have been a correspondent, but he used the term warning about the coming scientocracy. And mm -hmm. this was precisely what he was getting. You know, people claiming to speak from their scientific expertise, meaning because we are experts, therefore you have to do this. And his point on that in a wonderful little essay called Willing Slaves of the Welfare State is that, you know, scientists should tell us about the sciences, but government is about the good for man and what's worth having at what price. And on those questions, a scientific training gives you no added value. In other words, uh, it's not enough to just say, you know, scientists can be very helpful in public policy, obviously, but it's not the be-all, end-all when you're trying to say, well, what should government fund or not fund? What should it command you to do or not do? There are other things, personal liberties, uh, basic moral uh, truths and traits that also limit and provide a context uh, for science. And that so, you know, science and scientists don't have the right to dictate all of public policy. Yet we're seeing the opposite today. I mean, this is just like from the latest headlines. I mean, mm. the debate that we're having over whether religious institutions, for example, should be mandated to, ha to offer abortion drugs and, and contraceptives to uh, employees, how is that sold? Well, our, the, the Secretary of Health and Human Services in one of the initial press conferences said, well, this is good science. Science says we should do this, as if that – automatically counters people's religious liberties or other things. And, you know, time and again, science is being offered uh, as this trump card for everything else. And I think really being abused and misused. And Lewis was great in calling people on that. And so I think we can learn a lot for the things we're facing today from, mm. you know, what Lewis saw and warned about. Right. And also I think that, um, you know, he makes the point that um, this absolute idea of science is, is amoral in that it does not get into questions of ethics and morals, that, uh, which is really the purview of government, and that to say that something is scientific in the case that you just mentioned, which is uh, Secretary Sebelius, there is a subtle element to that, which is an attack on faith, which it says faith is not science, faith is superstition, and therefore it's, not, it's inferior. It's not allowed into the public discussion. Of course, some people even take it a step further and say it should be banned because they claim it's unconstitutional, something that's never been 
you know, tried or, or, or there's never been a, a, um, a judge or, or justice that has said that. But I also would point out that this is not even as much a matter of left and right because both left and right mm -hmm. have ideologies that have wrapped themselves in the flag of science. On the left, of course, you have scientific socialism. I mean, this idea that um, the big nanny state is, is scientific, that it's absolute provable that it can help people and that, that this elite should uh, dictate people's lives because they, they know more science than the rest of us. But on the right, of course, you have the libertarian movement, which is the furthest right we can go, and that is the scientific idea that was, I think, promulgated by such thinkers as Ayn Rand that say that government can only be involved in policing and a judicial system and an army and, and contracts and nothing more because to get into anything more gets into moral judgments, and that's not scientific. Both of them are wrong. Both of them miss the point of what government is, which is it's something that weighs and measures people's interests. It's not a perfect entity. It is imperfect. It, it, it figures in matters of science, matters of faith, matters of ethics. You're exactly right, and actually this is actually a segue to one of Lewis's biggest beasts with uh, Darwinian theory, which was efforts to explain away morality mm -hmm. <laughs> using Darwinian theory, and actually explain away the human mind as simply the product of a blind, unguided, impersonal process, a mechanical process, if you will, and that our morals just you know, evolve over time based on the dictates for physical survival, and Lewis said you know, that doesn't explain uh, what morality really is that explains it away, and so he really took umbrage and pushed back at that uh and, and you know what that ends up doing to your moral system or even your belief in human rationality Lewis is great in pointing out science is based on your presumption that human rationality is real and that we actually yeah. can debate and discuss evidence. But if you believe in the Darwinian account of mind, we'd have, which is the, it's just the you know, blind product of an impersonal process that didn't have an end goal of, of ascertaining truth, why should we even believe in you know, uh, our belief about Darwinian evolution, for this matter? And uh, you know, sort of self-contradictory. And interestingly, and our book is one of the first ones to do this, actually it is the first book to do this, Lewis had lots of science books in his personal collection. He loved to underline and write little annotations and notes on them. Mm -hmm. And so we actually transcribed those and report about those. One of the books that intrigued him in his personal library was Charles Darwin's Autobiography. And it's interesting. Darwin himself, um, when in his notebooks and his private writings, raised this question that he was troubled by the fact that if his theory were true, why should he actually believe the result of his mind. And this even troubled Darwin. I mean, Darwin didn't really follow it to his logical conclusion and realize that, well, you can't hold it. But he actually said, you know, why, if I really am just, uh, you know, come from the lowest animals through this blind process, why should I believe these things? Lewis underlined That's that amazing. comment by Darwin in his personal okay. copy of. Yeah. The book was published by Discovery Institute Press. It is mm -hmm. The Magician's Twin, C.S. Lewis on Science, Scientism, and Society. My guest is John G. West. He's the editor, and he's contributed to the book. Um, what, what a fascinating premise. In a sense, uh, this view of science is unscientific for two reasons. First of all, it, it's a materialist view, and that in and of itself is a religion. It's a belief that everything exists as matter, not, and there's nothing that, that, that's possibly outside of that. It's like a closed system. 
and secondly, that it's a belief that uh, avoids any any um, contemplation on um, the um, you know the supernatural, the the fact that the that, that the human being and that existence is more than just a bag of bones and flesh. That there's something greater. There's a soul. There's a something almost, I guess we'd have to say, magical, if you will, uh, of of the fact that a human being wakes up in the morning and walks around and and is able to reason. And it sort of puts on its head this idea that reason is something that can be explained through the material world. It can be explained scientifically. There is something about the ability of the human being to reason and to, in a sense, change his own destiny and the destiny of his people that, that is more than just – can more than be just explained by, by inanimate material science. And, and more than that, I mean, really, to be able to reason – to come up with our material theories of how, how things work, you know, on a material basis, presumes that reason is more than material, <laughs> and that the, right. you know, and, and Lewis in his book Miracles, especially, but also in a lot of essays, was was very uh, profound in pointing this out. And in fact, we have a couple chapters on Lewis's argument about reason, and that argument, although he wasn't a he was trained philosophically, but he was mainly an English professor later in his life. But that has been picked up by leading uh, philosophers there like Alvin Plantinga and others. I mean, Lewis was very influential in making this argument, what's sometimes called the evolutionary argument against naturalism, of how if, if you take the full-blown Darwinian materialistic evolution to its logical conclusion, how can you explain reason itself or, or you know, the ideas right. that you come from? Yeah. Well, the, the Darwinian theorem, and that's all it is. It's, it's a theory. It's not proven in science. It's, it's a hypothesis. And um, it, it's one of these examples of, that, that we've given, I think, of, um, of our establishment claiming that this is absolute science and that people who don't believe it are, are just not dealing with reality. But the, the entire theorem itself is, um, is it, it strips away um, any sort of a moral code. It's just based upon one moral principle and that was articulated by Darwin himself in the sixth edition of his book, uh, Origin of Species. He got the idea from Herbert Spencer, who was the main uh, Darwinian in the United States, um, and that is this uh, the slogan, survival of the fittest. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. That is what Darwinian understanding of, of the universe gets to, that the strong survive, that the weaker members of the species are either – they either die off or more likely they're murdered and annihilated, and that eventually in this process of winnowing down and mating, and the whole idea of natural selection is nothing more than a theory of mating, you know, where the superior members meet each other and mate, and then they have superior offspring, eventually, you know, umpteen thousand million years later, out pops a new species. It's actually it's a, it's a theory of mating, it's a theory of death. Basically, um, things die off, and a few things are left. And right. uh, also, uh, the modern theory, which is fused with genetics, is a theory of mistakes. Basically, random genetic errors. Out of that, if you have enough time and you have survival of the fittest, you will generate us. And, well, let, uh, yeah. Let, let me just address that because first, you're saying two things. The idea of death. Darwin was very influenced by the work of Thomas Malthus, who was. Uh, yes sort of the father of the modern population control movement and who wanted to starve poor people by telling uh, the British prime minister at the time, William Pitt, that he should cut off aid, he should cut off welfare, mm -hmm. as it were, 
so that people who were not fit would die out. And he uh, based his theories on a principle of scarcity, that, that there's only so much resources on the planet and that if we don't control our population and we get, get rid of uh, you know, useless eaters or whatever, <clears throat> then we're all going to starve, and the, the, those among us who are superior will starve. A very elitist attitude. And then the second point you bring up is the principle of mutation, which is also a part of Darwin's theory, which I think even Stephen Jay Gould, who was one of the major defenders of Darwin in the 20th century, Harvard professor, has admitted is false, and that is the idea that a, a mutated aspect of the human being or of any other species is what leads to evolution, when in fact uh, mutations are often the, you know, the, the first thing to not reproduce that a person who has serious mutations. I mean, it's not, it's not something that's passed down at all. No, that's right, and, and Stephen Jay Gould is one among many. I mean, Lynn Margulis, recently deceased a year or two ago, a National Academy of Sciences biologist, again, one of the, the most elite, she was very vocal in saying, you know, with mutations you get dead things. You get things right. broken down, and, and she said to think that that is the engine. She believed in evolution, but she thought Darwinian evolution being based off of uh, this blind process of selection and, and, and death and disease and mistakes was ludicrous. And um, so I think people, many people don't recognize just how widespread even scientists who say they believe in a type of evolution are coming to the conclusion that, well, natural selection won't get you much. It'll do some things, but it's not. It, it's a real problem trying to posit as this the creative force. And mm. I, I so like that you point out because so few people do know. You know, some people often say, "Well, survival of the fittest." That's a twisting of Darwin's theory. Well, yes, that was, t uh, you know, coined by Herbert Spencer. But as you point out, Darwin then used it in a later mm. edition of Origin of Species because he thought it was a better term than natural selection. Darwin was, you know very right. much thought that that was an accurate description of what he was getting at. And, of course, Darwin's Descent of Man, one of his sequel books, oh, yes. species, he actually goes in specifically and talks about how we're counteracting natural selection, we're going to destroy the human race by inoculating people against smallpox, helping the poor, saving the sick, basically preserving people that natural selection would have killed off in nature. And he was wringing his hands about how awful that was. Well, in the book Descent of Man, Darwin gets into a theory that I think made him the father of modern scientific racism. And that is he talks about, for example, the Australian aborigine as being closer in evolution to the baboon than to human beings. And this gets into where I think Darwinism as a theory, putting aside whether it's true or not, I tend to think it's not true, but that's another subject. Um, where it is not reconcilable with the Judeo-Christian ethos. And that is that uh, if you take a look at uh, the, uh, the Bible in the book of Genesis, putting aside whether or not it's technically true, it does lay out a particular theorem that I think resonates and that is also the idea that established our own republic, and that is that we were, and it says man and women, were created in the image of God. We were created in his image. And therefore, what it did was it set up a system in which every single human being is sacred. Every single human being's life is valued because, uh, just because they are a human being. They are images of God, images of the Creator. That's exactly and Thomas right. Jefferson understood this concept when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. 
and he pointed out that all men are created equal. In other words, this is a Judeo-Christian idea, that regardless of the circumstances of our life and our levels of experience and success, we were all created equal, we all die equal, and therefore we're all entitled to equal justice under the law. But if you look at the Darwinian idea, we are not created equal. You can't be created equal if we are all in different stages of evolution. In other words, if we had parents who were superior species, we are superior to someone who had parents who were inferior in, in their species and in their evolution. It's, it's inescapable that that is the science that, or the scientific theory that we're talking about here. No, that that's right, and I think I mean the one only thing I would qualify is, of course, uh, not all Christians have been consistent, and so there have been Christian racists. There have been, but I think they go against the tenor of of certainly the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that's certainly true. And and Darwin's theory, you know, people sometimes say, well, there were other scientific racists, yes, but what was so unique or, or so important and so bad about Darwin's theory is he basically supplied a scientific research agenda yes. for why you should expect people to be unequal. Because when he said, you know, natural selection a- acting on different populations, you know, with different conditions, you would expect inequality. And so it becomes a research agenda, not just a default, you know, uh, uh, unexamined assumption. It becomes the operating assumption. And so you did have a huge uh, – I know you've written on this, and I've written another book called Darwin Day in America that deals with this. You have uh, researchers and scientists and geneticists who are actually actively going, trying to find out inequalities because that's their – Darwin has given them a research agenda. And you still occasionally find this today explicitly. More often it's implicit. But I think of a couple of years ago, James Watson, the co-discoverer of you know, the structure of DNA, who's so celebrated, but people may remember that a couple, just a couple of years ago he got in hot water because he wrote a book where he basically argued that African blacks are inferior uh, biologically to European mm-hmm. whites. And why was it? This, this part didn't get reported very well. Well, he actually made the argument. Natural selection off, you know, operates, we know, differentially on different populations, so why should we expect them to have the same capacities? Right, and, and he was an honest Darwinian in that way. Yeah. And also, certainly racism exists, but Darwin, you know, even when you talk about Christian racism, it, it was not something that Christians claim is biological. I mean, that's, that's where Darwin, I think, stepped in and changed the tenor of the conversation. In other words, racism was just plain old-fashioned racism until Darwin gave it a scientific pentina. He basically wrapped it in the flag of scientific legitimacy. And in a sense, that that gets to, I think, what C.S. Lewis is talking about with regard to this acceptance of scientific theory as absolute fact. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a science that is fact. There is. I mean, we know, know chemistry is fact. You know, I mean, but there were also soft sciences like psychology. Uh, for example, today, Sigmund Freud's theories, most of which have been discarded by by psychotherapists. It's, an, it's a young science. And there's also pseudoscience and there's false science. And the whole process of science is one in which we examine, our scientists examine evidence, and they come up with new hypotheses, and they, and they, and they winnow out uh, bad science. Now, there's an interesting comment that uh, you report, or one of your essays reports, that uh, that C.S. Lewis made. And C.S. Lewis also was a, a, a medievalist. Yes. Um, in, in that he pointed out that the portrayal of Galileo and the Catholic Church was not exactly what we conventionally 
view it. I mean, in fact, there's a new play out which totally eviscerates the Catholic Church as being anti-science and because they put Galileo in prison, but that's not what happened. No. Lewis actually, and now there have been a lot of good historians of science, both Christian and non-Christian, to have pointed this out, but um, Lewis was one of the early people to point out that the stick-figure view of Middle Ages as being anti-science was so far from the truth that, I mean, it's almost the opposite. In fact, in right. his book, The Discarded Image, the last book he wrote, um, which is on the medieval worldview, he actually deals a lot with the origins of science and actually points out that, uh, in his view, the origins of scientific method, things like you know, parsimonious explanations and things, actually goes back to the Middle Ages. And mm-hmm. uh, also rebutted these, you know, even today, find people who think that, well, didn't they believe in the flat earth then? And they, that's why Columbus was afraid of going off the, you know, people thought he was going to go off the edge of the world. No, no, they didn't. They knew that it was, the world was round. Educated people didn't. And Lewis explodes the flat earth myth in that. He talks about, you know, some other things, uh, actually about the Galileo and the Copernican uh, revolution, and points out that, in fact, you actually find the birth of scientific rationality in the Middle Ages. And he was one of the early scholars to actually point that out. Now there are a lot who have, but um, he really is pointed out very well. Right, and also with regard to Galileo, the Catholic Church actually sponsored the work of Copernicus. And Copernicus yeah. was a, a Polish scientist. I think he was also a priest, if I'm not mistaken, who um, – who, who was the first to write about the fact that we don't have a, a an Earth-centered uh, galaxy and universe, that the sun is the center of our galaxy and that uh, that we're a planet that, that uh, goes around the sun. And that when Galileo, Galileo's crime was not the fact that he uh, furthered this theory, but that he insisted publicly that these theories were absolute proven fact. That's wow. what the church took objection to at the time. And that's what... Uh, I, I, and they took objection to it on scientific grounds. They said, well, let's wait and see and continue to examine and not codify things as absolute fact. And Lewis was very good on that, as, as you point out. He he did say, you know, there are facts on which science is based that you can prove true or not true, but then there are explanations of facts and theories that put them together, and those involve assumptions. Those things can be questioned, and those things can be debated and and you know theories can be uh, uh, become better or less you know by that and you have to and so he actually did use the term hypothesis with regard to Darwin's theory he thought mm-hmm. it was you know a scientific hypothesis but that didn't mean that it was necessarily true and certainly didn't mean that you couldn't question it and couldn't debate it and couldn't discuss it right and, and I also think that it's safe to say that um, part of the evidence of the truth or falseness of a theory is how it is practiced in in um, in, in our society. I mean, you know, it, it's sort of like if you have a bad, you know, it's a, what uh, former Attorney General Harry Doherty, who served under uh, the Coolidge, once said that the best way to get rid of a, a bad law is to enforce it. And so if you have a scientific theory that is not right, but you in, you, you kind of act on it, you, you, you practice it, and it, and it proves to be the bearer of bad fruit, then that should go to evidence that it might be wrong or it might at least be mostly wrong. And I think that with regard to Darwin's theory, it is safe to say, in my opinion, that the practice of Darwin, Darwinianism is eugenics, which is to say that if you do accept the premise that we have, we're at all different levels of evolution, 
then you almost feel an obligation, indeed a moral charge, to help evolve the species <clears throat> by planning. In other words, rather than wait for natural selection, you go into plan selection. So you find superior members of the species, and you mate them with other superior members, and uh, you try to improve the species that way so that eventually we can have a new superior species. And at the same time, you quarantine and you uh, isolate weaker members of the species and even perhaps eliminate them. And that's, uh, that explains, in my opinion, at least partially, and it's a very complex question, why the Nazis, who were very Darwinian in their beliefs, and in fact that was a core aspect of Nazism going back to um, Ernst Haeckel, who was the yep. um, chief scientist of the Nazis and who was, a, who was called Darwin's bulldog on the continent, um, that they believed that they were being humane when they isolated and annihilated what they viewed as superior, inferior specimens, and they tried to breed the superior members with the Liebenstrom and the, uh, the stud farms and the, uh, the SS having to reach high levels of proof that they were superior. I mean, their theory was that um, the new species would pop out and they could get that to happen sooner if they sped it up, yeah. and they called that new species the Ubermensch. Yep. And their view of the Ubermensch was blonde hair, blue eyes, <laughs> yeah. super strength, you know, very tall, very muscular in the case of men, and that they would live to be 150 to 200 years old and they would have cosmic consciousness. In other words, they, they believed that this was the, the, you know, if you take a look at it from a Darwinian standpoint, what they were doing was humane. Because if they could breed a superior species, that superior species would be in a position where they could solve, ex, you know, Problems for humanity. They could come well, up with two they, they humane. Of course, the, Dar the, the Darwinists in Germany actually killed off the, the people who they thought were were uh, inferior. But most eugenists say in England or America were content to keep them from breeding more. And they right. argued that uh, that yes, they were being humane because we had been counteracting the law of natural selection. So they said, you know, we could go back to the law of the jungle, but that would be inhumane. And so the reason why they were trying to reinstate selection artificially was because they thought they were being kinder and gentler. Because right. they, they knew that, you know, you could get this through blind Darwinian evolution, but that would be too cruel and, as you point out, take longer. And so why not do it in a more humane way by, and faster by, um, you know, applying our, our minds to uh, doing, you know, basically re redoing what natural selection had been doing. Uh, but we were now counteracting, and so there was a definite connection. And what's really scary now is that there are people like Lee Silver, a professor at um, uh, Princeton, biologist, in his book a few years ago, Remaking Eden, who are actually arguing, well, we need to be doing that now. We need to be breeding yes. the you know, super race, uh, and that's the humane thing to do. And, I mean, that's scary. Well, well, it, it also man, it also manifests in other movements. I think it's, uh, you know, the population control movement is a big part of that. How to get rid of and reduce, uh, you know, what Margaret Sanger actually once called dysgenic races and useless eaters. And uh, you know, in fact, the whole eugenics movement before World War II was viewed as a progressive movement in this country. I mean, the opponents to it were religious people, the Catholic yeah. Church. The same people who oppose religious abortion. Religious conservatives. 
I mean, there were That's some religious right. liberal, religious progressive, but religious conservatives, the, the dreaded religious right. They were That's the right. And, and, and Catholics most of all. They were the most, by far, the most articulate. And and some states like Louisiana that narrowly averted forced sterilization eugenics laws. It was thanks to the uh, courageous leadership of the Catholic clergy, especially in those states, of That's saying, right. you know, this was wrong. That's right. It's the same people that oppose abortion today, and. You know, this was a movement that that inspired the Nazis. They were there, there were sterilization laws passed in I think it was almost 20 states. Um, there were 30. That's perhaps and and the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was viewed as a great progressive hero, he wrote the decision in Buck versus Bell, which uh, basically legalized sterilization in Maryland for a woman who was seen as too promiscuous and who uh, perhaps was seen as mentally impaired. And the language of that decision is absolutely chilling. And uh, this was something yeah, three that gen- was... Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Yes. And, and, and the sad thing is that, that, that full story, she actually was not promiscuous. She was raped, and she by the end of her life... She had been uh, uh, a caregiver. She read. She wrote letters. She was. She was. There was no evidence that she was even mentally impaired. And yet, this poor woman was, um, you know, made to sacrifice on the altar of sort of Darwinian social progress. And and she was one of tens of thousands in America. Of course, hundreds of thousands in Germany. And then then many were killed also in Germany, um, not just sterilized. Uh, yeah, it was awful. Right. Yeah, it was, and, and and again, I mean, this is the what I would argue is the logical manifestation of the Darwinian theory. You know, this is if you believe that theory, then you believed that what you were doing was good for humanity. You were creating a superior species, and, and, and I think you were, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, what it does is it shows the falseness of the theory, in my opinion. Well, it, it it was driven because you thought that natural selection, this blind process of survival of the fittest, is the only thing that made us who we are, and so that if we counteract it, we're going to destroy ourselves. So it actually gave you an imperative. You either had to go back to blind natural selection, or you had to institute something like eugenics. So, right. I mean, really, they thought the fate of humanity and the human race was at stake because of their Darwinian worldview. And I agree, you know, the fact that something has bad consequences does not logically refute the, the truth of the idea, but right. if something has bad implications and bad consequences that we know on other grounds, like, you know, it, it says morality uh, is nothing but just survival of the fittest. There is no real morality, and refutes things that you know on other grounds, you know, happen to be true, that should give you a clue to say, well, maybe the reason it has these bad consequences is because it's not true, you know. And so I That's do right. think that the, the bad consequences should, is a wake-up call to say, well, why do we think it's true? And to look at the evidence, because if it has all these insane implications that we know for other reasons can't be true, then uh, is the underlying view true? And I, so I do think there is a definite connection there. Well, I mean, I think it's like Jesus said at the Mount, you know, a good tree cannot bear evil fruit. And... Um, you know, look, I mean, I don't, I'm not therefore a fundamentalist here. I'm not even Christian, actually. But, um, you know, I think that in the broad sense, and, and I think that my views are probably very close to C.S. Lewis on this, that there is some basic truth in the Bible, even if much of it is mysterious, and deliberately so, in terms of the origin of man. And that uh, basically I would hope that both uh, – that that uh, all of these things, whether it be intelligent design or whether it be uh, the theory of evolution or creationism, for that matter, 
they should all be viewed as philosophies, uh, not as either religions or as sciences. You know, and then we should have discussions on each of them, on their merits in terms of how they've influenced our societies and our ethics in schools, and let the better uh, theory uh, prevail. But, but the fact is that we have a system here, and this has been in place since the Scopes trial, which was actually supposed to be a trial that would allow freedom in our schools in terms of debating the origins of man, but which has resulted in the codification of the theory of evolution as our national religion, and that it is not legal to dispute it in schools. Yeah, no, I think you raise a great point. I'm so glad you brought it up. One doesn't need to be a, a fundamentalist or a fundamentalist reading of Genesis, which I certainly don't hold to, um, to think that there's something screwy about the overarching sort of Darwinian explanation of mind, morality, human beings, that human beings are nothing but, you know, um, sort right. of a little more adapted version of, of lower uh, creatures and that you can deconstruct these things and that they don't have value in and of themselves. And that really is similar with Lewis. Lewis was not a, a fundamentalist, didn't read Genesis scientifically, didn't actually, as a Christian, have an objection that common an, about to common ancestry, although he was skeptical of some of the evidence for it. But this effort to explain the human mind, the human uh, morality, uh, and things based on just blind material process, he thought didn't hold water, and he was very skeptical of that, and skeptical of you know Darwinian claims about you know natural selection being sufficient to uh, create human beings and mind and morality. Right, and, and I think that I, I point out that all of these things, the theories, the Bible itself, if you take a look at the mysteries of the book of Genesis, and, and I, I'm looking at this mainly from the rabbinic standpoint because I mm -hmm. have to be Jewish, that, um, that, that the rabbis have said that um, there's a large portion of the Bible, especially that part of it, that is deliberately mysterious, that God mm -hmm. does not reveal the whole nature of how the earth came to be and how man came to be. So you know you you don't you know to take a look at it scientifically is actually not not consonant with uh, with the faith and I think Christianity also generally uh, views it that way. Having said that, there is more scientific evidence that the Bible is true than than Darwin's theory, and I would point out to, point to a, an increasing number of scientists today who consider that all of man is descended from one. Mother, they call it the mitochondrial Eve, mm -hmm. and more recently one father, who's called the Y chromosome Adam. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, not that this proves anything, but uh, there is no evidence, not a shred of evidence, that man evolved from the ape, which is Darwin's theory. It was his theory then, and it's the evolutionary theory today. And I have debated people on this program over the past year or so, who are very ardent uh, Darwinians, including scientists. And they may dance around with me, but they will eventually admit, they may scream and kick and, and yell, but they will admit, or they'll hang up on me, that there is no evidence to back up this theory. None. Yeah, I think the, the most pernicious thing today about this whole issue of science and scientism, and, and particularly applied to Darwinian theory, is the attempt to gag rational discussion. And mm -hmm. the attempt to say that, well, if you question any part of it or even raise the question, no matter what your training is, no matter what your scientific training is, no matter how thoughtful you are, well, you're just 
loony, and therefore, and you aren't entitled to say anything. And, and Lewis was, again, very good at pushing back at that sort of dogmatism. I think one of the things that most worried him is that he saw this, this unthinking, unreflective dogmatism in the name of science, which is supposed to be, and, right. and, in its, and in its, when it's done right, is you know, self-critical and evidence-based and allowing people to actually debate the evidence. And so it really troubled him that this morphing among some people, you know, in his time, people like H.G. Wells, J.P.L. Haldane, and other people who were really treating it as their unreflective religion. And yes. that couldn't be questioned in a bad sense. I mean, in a good sense, actually, I would say as a person of faith, I, I think people of faith are reflective and very thoughtful in and, and, and pondering the mysteries of the universe. But, you know, in a bad sense of treating it just so dogmatically, that's how they're treating their, their science. And that's bad science, let alone it is. bad philosophy and everything else. It's bad science and their approach to the issue and the theory, and I think the theory itself is bad science, but that's beside the point. I mean, what you're describing when you mention H.G. Wells and Haldane and, and others is that they they sort of started this whole idea that there had to be this absolute separation between science and faith and that they are not – they're irreconcilable entities, which is untrue. I mean, it, it's an attack on faith to suggest that people of faith – are not scientific or don't revere science. I mean, the, you know, in a sense, the, the discipline of science itself, I suppose, you have to look at as a material topic. I mean, they're looking at the, the, the God's world and how, what exists, and, and, um, and they're analyzing that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a supernatural. It doesn't, one thing does not exist exclusive of the other. It's sort of like they're just two different disciplines. And Lewis pointed out um, in in one of his books that that at the very beginnings of science, as he put it, people thought they could find laws in nature because they thought there was a legislator. And there have been lots of historians of science and sociologists, people like actually Rodney Stark, uh, a book a couple of years ago, For the Glory of God, that if you actually look at the beginnings of early modern science, the numbers of people who were not just uh, you know uh, residual deists or something, but who were devout theists and and thought that what they were doing in science and discovering the, you know, the things that God created, that that actually gave them a, a foundation to actually, that helped inspire some of their scientific activities. And people like Johannes Kepler and others, they wrote about this. I mean, we're not imposing on them. That's how they explained their passion for science. And so this, this myth that developed largely in the 19th century uh, and then by, of this warfare between science and theology and how you know, uh, Christians and others were just putting down science and keeping it from going ahead. It was just, it's not only wrong, it was like almost the inverse of the truth. That's right. I mean, look at, I mean, there were some of the greatest scientists who were also devout believers. Albert Einstein comes to mind. He uh, was a devout believer in God, and he's, he's, at the end of his life, he said his only regret was he never had the opportunity to study the Talmud. And, uh, and Gregor Mendel, the father of, yeah. uh, of uh, genetics, was a Catholic monk. So uh, the, uh, this idea is uh, it, it's a false um, premise right right off the bat. I mean, uh, the, this sort of exclusivity of uh, of science. But you talk about the emergence of this in the 19th century. I think that scientism as a faith was uh, started to emerge in the 19th century. Saint Simon was a big advocate of this, and he was seen as an early socialist. And the idea was that it was science and science alone that could um, redeem the world. It was the Messiah. That, uh, That's th right. That the worst, right. 
and you actually find some of the eugenists of a little later time actually talking about creating a new Eden and using actually biblical imagery right. for what they were going to do through you know, human know-how through science. And, sure. uh, you know, really, they didn't necessarily believe in God, but they believed human beings could become God. It was exactly. Really, it was a utopian right. idea that was was actually even more far-reaching than anything that a faith could come up with. We did, uh, in uh, conjunction with the book, The Magician's Twin, we actually have a half-hour video that people can view for free on YouTube or at cslewisweb.com. But as part of that, we have a clip from the, uh, this movie that H.G. Wells did based on his book, The Shape of Things to Come, where mm. it, it's really, if, if this was done in the 1930s, it is really sinister. I mean, this guy is basically talking about colonizing future planets and basically becoming like God, and it's just, this yeah. is out of, you know, their worldview, and it, and it has real consequences, and they're not good. Right. I mean, you can hear that in the language of uh, scientism. And uh, just uh, another piece that uh, I, I discovered in my own research for my book, The Monkey Trial, was the close relationship between Darwin and Marx, in that Marx and Engels also were big admirers of Darwin. And, uh, in fact, uh, Marx wanted to dedicate Das Kapital to Darwin and sent him a letter, and uh, Darwin responded. And they both were contemporaries in London that Darwin responded by declining the honor, saying that he really didn't feel that he knew enough about economics. And that letter exists in the Darwin House Museum in London. Um, that uh, At his funeral, Engels said that uh, Darwin's theory made Marxism possible. And the reason that is is because what Marx did was he took the Darwinian biological idea of evolution and he superimposed it on a social theory, which was that man could be evolved politically and socially through stages, through evolutionary stages, the ultimate final stage being communism, world communism where the entire planet becomes one gigantic ant colony and that everybody gives up such ideas as uh, individual identity and faith and family and, and property and sovereignty and, and that, that we would evolve. So, you know, the idea of Darwinism, the idea of evolution is one that can be looked at from a lot of angles, not just uh, scientifically, but also what it's done politically and socially to the world. No, that's right. And even today, I mean, cite someone else at Princeton, Peter Singer, you know, this mm -hmm. radical animal rights um, you know, proponent. When he's interviewed, it, you know, where does he get this? He actually gave an interview where he said, well, all we're doing is catching up with Darwin. Darwin mm -hmm. basically showed us the truth that we're basically no different or better than other species, and so you know that's where you get him thinking that an adult pig is more valuable than a you know one day old human baby, and uh, I mean just really, I mean, and using to, the logic of Darwinism, he'd be right. You're right, and, and, and he does. And the thing is, this is not imposing on him. This is how he explains himself. And so, um, you're, and you were exactly right on the population control movement, which, in fact, really was a morphing of the eugenics movement, you know, by another you know, term. For my book, Darwin Day in America, I actually did research at the archives of several of the eugenics groups, and several of them are based out of uh, in Philadelphia, the archives. And uh, one of the head, Frederick, um, I can't remember his last name now, but who became the head of the International Population Council. He had previous to the war been the president of the American Eugenics Society. Mm -hmm. and, and in his letters, he made clear 
that the reason that they were abandoning the term eugenics uh, because it, you know, it was politically unpalatable, but what they were trying to do through population control was the same thing. In fact, he, yes. one of his letters actually talks about that through population control you can actually more perfectly um, you basically get at the goal of natural selection than we could by some of the things we were doing earlier because you can convince it it's for their benefit and you know it's it's humane it's all this stuff. Um, sure. but there's no, there was mean, a look, well, connection there. World War II and Hitler gave eugenics a, a bad name and uh, a bad stench in terms of its public relations. I mean, I have language in my book that shows Julian Huxley, who was oh, the yeah. first chairman of UNESCO, <laughs> talks about this in very explicitly in, in actually in the guidebook for the establishment of UNESCO, that um, since World War II we have to come up with a new formula for um, you know, furthering the goals of eugenics. He was the head of the Eugenics Society of, of London. Yep. And, uh, you know, he talks about this new consensus where um, Darwinian theory would be merged with, um, with, with legitimate sciences such as genetics and paleontology as a way of sort of rebranding it, if you will. And uh, he talked about creating a new religion, which he called evolutionary humanism, mm -hmm. and that this would not be a religion in the formal sense, it would be a religion of an idea that would basically take over conventional religions, which would leave in place the stained glass and the incense and the ceremony, but would replace the belief system with this new uh, evolutionary idea. And it's amazing how that is actually yeah. happening. We have, and in the both in our book and in the film version, we have segments on basically the evolutionary religion of things like Darwin Day, you know, that now instead mm -hmm. of celebrating Lincoln's birthday, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of of groups that celebrate Darwin's birthday as if he's a saint. They have right. revival meetings, singing mock gospel music that's actually devoted to evolution. You have people who call themselves evolutionary evangelists, uh, who I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Oh, know? I know. Uh, I've interviewed. I interviewed one of them that you mentioned in your book, that being a minister by the name of Dowd. Oh, who, Michael um, Dowd, yeah. Yes, and boy, what a contentious interview it was. But, um, you know, you're right. I mean, it's becoming like a, 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 a spir really a, a, an anti but yet pro-spiritual movement. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a belief system, and I think that's manifesting itself more and more. John, we've reached the end of the program, so I'd like you to let people know how they can get your excellent book and how they can find out more information about the uh, Discovery Institute. Great. So The Magician's Twin, they can get it anywhere, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. Um, they can get more information about it and download a free chapter at cslewisweb.com, cslewisweb.com. And also there they can get access to this video that we're doing. And um, at Discovery Institute, that's uh, discovery.org. And so you can find information there about that. John, I want to thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you for having me. All right, my pleasure. All right, we shall be right back after these messages.
like to thank my guests this afternoon. It's been quite a, a vigorous program, I'd say. Uh, first, we had in hour number one Robert Franklin, who is uh, discussing his documentary dealing with the erosion of due process in our civil and criminal proceedings in America. And in hour number two, we had John West, who is a, um, an editor and contributed to this new book, The Magician's Twin, C.S. Lewis on Science, Scientism, and Society. Uh, check out the Discovery Institute website for information on that. Um, and uh, what else is going on in the world? The Drudge Report headlines, Republicans to Democrats, we've done our part in fiscal crisis negotiations. Good. House Republican leaders said Wednesday they've done their job in negotiations to solve the looming fiscal crisis while President Obama is returning to the campaign trail to sell tax hikes that studies show won't have much, if any, effect on solving the problem. I think that even Obama understands that um, if you raise taxes by 50% on top income earners in this country, it would only be a drop in the bucket in terms of um, maintaining the present expenditure in government. That the real problem is that our government is spending too much, that uh, they have to cut spending. This has been the message of the Republicans over the past two years since they've been in Congress and before then, and this administration just continues to fight that. They do not want to cut spending. They make vague references to maybe cutting something, even though they don't mention what it is, and they continue to insist on raising taxes. And uh, I think that, in a sense, the Republicans have become a victim of their own success in this regard, because since the election of 2010, which elected a Republican majority in the U.S. House of Representatives for the first time since uh, Newt Gingrich, um, what happened was that um, they did not allow the Obama administration to raise taxes for the past two years. They would not compromise and allow for the tax increase. Eventually, the compromise was what we're calling sequestration and this so-called, what Obama is calling a fiscal cliff, that being that um, taxes will be raised at the end of the year going into next year, but it will also be major, major cuts in expenditures, particularly in defense. Um, but either way, for the past two years, they have not allowed any tax increases. They forced Obama to back down on allowing the Bush tax cuts to expire in 2010. And the result has been that there has been an improvement in the economy. And yet it's Obama and his administration that was able to take credit for that improvement and get reelected, even though the improvement was as a result, arguably, and I would argue, of the tax policy and the fiscal policy of the Republican House of Representatives. So in a sense, we are the victims of our own success. The American people don't understand that. I don't think it, I mean, ultimately, I don't really care if, if people give Obama credit. Let him take the credit. The important thing is that we have an economy that is moving toward allowing capital to accumulate in the pockets and in the hands of those who own and create capital, that being the private sector, and that we have a federal government that acts more and more within its means by reducing unnecessary costs. 
And uh, the entire discussion since Obama's election now has been, and it reminds me of the old days with Michael Dukakis when he was governor of Massachusetts. I, I, I look back to that because that's where I really started to get involved as a political thinker. And the argument is, how much should we raise taxes? Gee, why can't these bad people allow us to raise taxes? We want to raise taxes. And uh, there's a certain subtle conditioning going on in terms of uh, people assuming that raising taxes is good. What they need to keep in mind is that if the government raises taxes, first of all, it's not going to matter because it's not going to reduce the deficit or the problems that we face. But secondly... The rich, the very rich, aren't going to pay those taxes because the very rich have all their money sheltered into these very sophisticated trust funds and offshore accounts and whatnot. I mean, look, I mean, they're not going to get hit with the tax increase. The tax increase is going to be fall. Therefore, the tax increase is going to fall upon the very struggling middle class. They're going to pay the taxes. So don't be fooled by this. Uh, demagogic language that uh, somehow you should hit up the guy down the street because he's richer than you because it makes you feel good to have him taxed and then agree that that taxes must be raised and instead take a look a more realistic look at exactly what this is going to mean for you you being the working person if taxes go up it's going to hit you john and jane q working public you know the taxpayer the middle level taxpayer because not only is it going to be a tax that ultimately you're going to pay directly, but also it's a tax that you're going to pay indirectly in that it's going to affect the cost of goods and services across the board. It's going to affect the cost of gasoline, the cost of groceries, the cost of everything, all of those things being going up. And if they don't cut the size of government, and, and not only that, but if they use the new taxes, not to reduce the deficit, but to actually increase government even further, which they can do constitutionally, and which I don't think there's any reason to think they will not do, then what's going to happen is there's going to be a bigger debt down the road, and there's going to eventually be a devaluation of your money. Your dollars will be worth less. I mean, your dollar is worth only a dime compared to what it was worth in 1930. And uh, that's going to hurt every working man and woman, especially people on fixed incomes. So we shall discuss it further when I, God willing, return tomorrow at noon Eastern Standard Time. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse. Check out the blog site, Chuck Morse Speaks. You can order my book online, that being The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. Uh, that's $3.75. The only place you can get it is on the blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks. And uh, I want to thank everyone for listening this afternoon. Have a nice afternoon, everybody.